Welcome to our continuing 2018 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Specialist for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have with us Sean McKenna of Law Office of Sean McKenna, Nathan Fish of Greenberg Trowick, and Brad Smyer of Austin and Bird. With almost 20 years of experience, Sean McKenna of the Law Office of Sean McKenna in Dallas, Texas, is a nationally recognized defense attorney who focuses his practice on defending executives and providers of healthcare enforcement, litigation, and regulatory issues under civil or administrative investigation by the U.S. Department of Justice, Offices of Inspector General, and Attorneys General Medicaid Fraud Control Units, as well as in criminal investigations and matters involving federal and state governments. As a former 10-year Assistant United States Attorney Associate Counsel to the Inspector General and General Counsel for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Sean also assists clients with in internal investigations, compliance reviews, as well as advising on their compliance with state and federal fraud and abuse rules. He is a frequent invited speaker at national, regional, and local conferences. Nathan Fish, Associate Attorney with Greenberg Traug, counsels health care clients on a wide range of regulatory issues, including fraud and abuse, marketing, Medicare, Medicaid enrollment and reimbursement, and licensure. Nathan has wide-ranging experience with healthcare transactions, internal investigations and compliance reviews, and government enforcement actions, investigations, and audits. Brad Smyer represents companies in complex litigation, government, and internal corporate investigations and en enforcement proceedings. He has experience in both state and federal court systems, as well as administrative and alternative dispute resolution forums. Brad regularly helps healthcare clients avoid and resolve whistleblower suits and government enforcement actions. He regularly draws on industry experience, including his certification in healthcare compliance and former EMT license to help clients prevent and address regulatory compliance issues and conduct internal investigations and defend against government investigations, actions, and audits. Before joining Austin and Byrd, Brad clerked for the Honorable Lloyd D. George, Chief Justice Emeritus of the U.S. District Court for the District of Nevada and worked for another global law firm. While in law school, Brad was an SKE scholar and was awarded Legal Practice Programs Honors. A copy of the slide deck is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM CEU certificate will be emailed to you from PACOM following the broadcast. There is no need to request it. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout should be available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. Sean, Nathan, Brad, a warm welcome. 
Thank you, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here with you today and all the attendees. So our information is at the beginning should you need to ask any questions after the presentation. But what I wanted to do is briefly talk about the agenda. You know, guys, conflict of interest laws are pervasive in healthcare, and we're going to touch on some of the major ones, including the anti-kickback statute and as well as the Stark Law, but then also talk about some criminal cases involving a relatively recent addition to the arsenal of the Department of Justice under the Travel Act. We'll talk about that and other statutes and developments and trends and the current enforcement climate, and then also finish up with some questions and conclusions and takeaways. And so I look forward to hearing from my colleagues, Nathan and Brad. So Brad, why don't you talk to us a little bit about summary of these laws? Thanks, Sean. So healthcare has some unique aspects, um, as we all are aware of, and one of these is conflict of interest. Um, probably no statute better exemplifies that than the anti-kickback statute. Um, it's a criminal statute that criminalizes what behavior may be totally legitimate and authorized in other business contexts. I just want to give a little bit of history and overview of the current language of the AKS and then discuss a few key concepts for analyzing potential AKS, AKS issues and then turn the time over to Nathan to cover some of the safe harbors that uh, are most commonly used. So in its current form, the AKS is a criminal statute that prohibits the exchange or offer to exchange of anything of value in an effort to induce or re reward the referral of a federal health care program business. Now, the AKS wasn't originally a felony. It was, it was enacted in 1972 to protect patients and federal health care programs from fraud and abuse, particularly risks associated with overutilization, increased program costs, corruption of medical decision-making, patient steering, and unfair competition. Legislative history shows that it was enacted to help combat these practices and that these practices had long been regarded by professional organizations as unethical um, and unlawful in some jurisdictions. So the AKS was amended in 1977 to make violations of it a felony to strengthen the penalties against illegal practices by some individuals who provide service to Medicare and Medicaid and to contribute significantly to the cost of the programs. The amendments covered the expansion of any remuneration uh, as it's currently defined in the statute to include a kickback, bribe, rebate, um, or anything of value directly or indirectly. And Brad, I mean, remuneration in the statute is pretty broad, especially in deemed in the case law. What are you seeing as far as examples of remuneration from the Department of Justice or the OIG? So it's in, it is interesting, Sean. Um, Remuneration is very broad. One of the things that um, we have seen recently is concerns about debt forgiveness being considered remuneration, um, whether it's a loan forgiveness or other type of arrangements that may or may not be um, normal practice in, in, in the normal course of business, which but provide some kind of, you know, definitely some concerns under the AKS. That, that kind of exemplifies on one end the expansive scope of remuneration because it's not necessarily giving somebody money outright, but um, giving them a benefit that they had otherwise be entitled, otherwise wouldn't be entitled to. Are we still talking about the donuts and, and lunchings? 
So I, I assume that that comes in in some context, although people have, um, you know, been attuned to those things. Um, but but sometimes we're, we're talking about more sophisticated business um, transactions and the financing aspects of those that uh, kind of demonstrate why it's important to have healthcare regulatory uh, lawyers involved in the deals that you're doing because some of the aspects of of those deals may not raise uh, flat red flags or eyebrows for anybody who doesn't have any any uh, working knowledge of the ACAS. And then Brad, I'll just comment on some of the cases I've had recently. The Department of Justice and the investigators are seeming to aggregate the benefits, putting some sort of value to it, especially when you're trying to claim some sort of de minimis, de minimis uh, exception. And I think Nathan can address that later on. But you know, we're seeing tickets and happy hours at certain events being aggregated to say that, yes, there is an undue influence on the decision-making process, especially when it comes to prescribers and clinicians. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the interesting things is when you look at remuneration, and especially in aggregation, as Sean's talking about, you also have to keep in mind one unique aspect of the AKS, which has been called its one-purpose test. So, it, you know, going all the way back, uh, United States for v. Grieber, uh, a landmark case by the Third Circuit that it was interpreting the scope of the AKS, effectively established the one-purpose test, which is if one purpose of a payment was to induce future referrals, then the Medicare statute has been violated. Now, that, that was a, expressly adopted by the Fifth, Ninth, and Tenth Circuits. The First Circuit has adopted a similar test they call the primary purpose test, whereas well, if one of the primary purposes was to induce referrals, then the AKS has been violated. It's interesting because this is one of many different issues and interpretations the U.S. Supreme Court has not yet directly addressed um, in interpretation of the anti-kickback statute. Now, being a criminal statute, AKS is intent-based. The, the payments must or solicitations must be knowingly and willfully uh, performed this is also another area where the Supreme Court has never ruled directly on the meaning of willfully under the AKS. There's a there's a similar case that uh, the defense bar has looked to to try to interpret what, what the Supreme Court may do, Brian v. U.S., um, to resolve a similar split among different circuits under different statute as to willfully. Um, and in that case, the Supreme Court uh, required knowledge by the defendant that he was violating the statute at issue um, but did not require any knowledge of the AKS. Um, and this is this is specific. Uh, this was addressed in a, in a roundabout and somewhat different way by the Congress um, in a fairly recent addition to, this, to the language uh, where no specific intent is required. That means you don't have to know about the AKS or mean to violate it. You just have to knowingly and willfully perform the acts that would be a violation of it. You know, it seems the statute has a pretty broad reach, as you point out. It's all any person, not just a clinician, but it also it's the recommending or arranging for recommending, which is very broad. Exactly. So it it, it does have broad scope, and it applies to non-clinicians, marketing people, um, and so that's that's why providers need to be very attuned to not only their compliance efforts, but how this implicates any potential dealer arrangement because of its 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 broad scope. Um, and not only does that broad scope as far as application, but it has pretty serious penalties. Um, healthcare providers and other business entities are always wanting certainty 
but unfortunately the AKS is cold comfort for certainty for a number of reasons. Um, the you know a provider if they're in an inter in a situation they want to know whether an arrangement potentially implicates the AKS can seek an advisory opinion, but they're not precedential um, and and they're only specific to the parties in the specific facts um, before the the advisory. So. Um, that's one avenue that providers can look to to try to see whether or not an arrangement may or may not be um, considered, at least from an agency perspective, to violate the AKS. Uh, as you can see, the penalties uh, are substantial. Criminal fines of up to $25,000 per violation, imprisonment up to five years, uh, civil monetary penalties and exclusion. It's interesting because absent a conviction, uh, individuals who violate the AKS can still face exclusion from health, health, federal health care programs at the discretion of the secretary. And administratively, the government may also assess civil penalties, which can result in treble damages plus $50,000 for each violation of the AKS statute. So not only is there criminal risk through the court systems, but there's pretty substantial administrative risk. And that's another reason why, um, you know, this, this is a number one on our list for things to talk about as far as conflicts of interest, the, an AKS violation can form the predicate for an FCA claim, which is really the hook. There's no private right of enforcement that, that an individual would have under the AKS directly, but what they would do is seek it through an FCA claim, and we'll talk about some of that and how that works a little bit later. So the uh, as we had talked about already, you know, the scope of referrals are so broad, and it includes arranging for, recommending, purchasing, leasing, or ordering. Um, and you, and as you can see from the materials that we've provided, uh, just some examples. It's it's very inclusive and broad, and so that's that's something to keep attuned to. Right, and it can also bridge just simply, as you point out, a certificate, uh, certification, or recertification, and then the attending services can be captured by the. AKS if the government so deems. Exactly. Right. Um, and another piece is items or services. So if you're recommending or arranging for items or services, those are also broad. And we just we have a list here as a, a demonstrative for you to see that it, it can include any, any inpatient or outpatient hospital services. So if, if, if you're a hospital provider um, or, you know, health system, that's essentially all the services you you would provide. Um, and so that's that's another another thing to be attuned to is how broad this is defined, not only in the scope of people it applies to, but also the items and services it applies to. And one thing people have to be aware of, the statute only talks about payable under the statute. I haven't seen that been used and most of the time with paid claims because then it becomes a damages question and whether or not the government wants to proceed. But you know, I can see in the False Claims Act context, Brad, that you know, even whether the claims weren't paid for whatever reason, if it still violates AKS, I could see a relator's counsel saying there's penalties involved. Yeah, that's a good point, Sean. It's uh, it's akin to, you know, uh, the question of an FCA uh, case where you're just dealing with penalties and not damages. Um, but the statute does say that, so there is that room, and that's something to be attuned to. That it may be lower on the enforcement risk, but the risk is there and should be analyzed nonetheless. Um, and the AKS. It's interesting because we'll talk about some of the other criminal statutes in the government's arsenal in a little bit, but the AKS is limited to federal health care programs, 
Um, and so any program that would receive federal funding, we have a couple examples here. Primary among them would be Medicare and Medicaid. You'd also have TRICARE and uh, VA services. But there's one notable exception, right, Brad? Yeah, exactly. So um, have you seen this, this exception ever used in your practice, Sean? Yeah, so I mean the exception addresses FE, Federal Employee Benefits Program. And so that's the essentially services rendered to federal employees and their dependents. And so it's specifically exempted from the statute, although that agency has tried to get it put back in. But that could be a significant case. For instance, in a criminal prosecution out here in Dallas, the FEHBP component was you know, tens and tens of millions of dollars. But they couldn't use it under the ATS. They had to use another theory, which we'll get to in a minute. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so that's, that's part of the part of um, the impetus for the government to have other tools that are more expansive. All right, Brad, talk to us about kind of remuneration. We, we touched on this as well. Anything else to add? Yeah, you know, I just I was going to say, going back to what we talked about, how expansive this is, there's a there's a case that maybe I think illustrates uh, kind of an older case from 2010. There's a settlement from Christ Hospital uh, for 108 million dollars to settle accusations that they violate the anti-kickback statute and the False Claims Act. And I think it maybe the facts of that case illustrate some of how this could be applied in practice. So, as it was alleged, uh, cardiologists, high-performing cardiologists, uh, were granted preferable access to a heart station, which essentially was a center where patients would receive non-invasive procedures such as electrocardiograms and stress tests. And the cardiologists who referred the business um, were, were, like I said, given scheduling preference. Um, the allegations were based on that, but as a practical matter, the cardiologists, by doing the work they performed, the heart station was reimbursed at a much lower rate than the services that they'd otherwise provide. So it provides kind of an example that it, the value of it doesn't necessarily matter. What you're, what you're asking for, what you're receiving under the anti-kickback statute, it could still be a violation, even if it's not necessarily preferable. I, um, you, could be, you could be given something uh, of a small amount or something that's less than what you would normally take, but if it satisfies the four corners of the AKS, you may have a problem. Right, and we're also seeing waiver of copays included in this, Brad. But talk to us about the carve out because I think that's a big kind of area of kind of uncertainty for a lot of providers. Yeah. Um, so one of, one of the things that has developed over time is the thought of a carve out, uh, and we see it a lot in in the advisory opinions where we would, you know, a, a provider or other service provider would realize that. Since the AKS is limited specifically to programs that receive federal funding, they would have a, one type of arrangement for uh, commercial payers and, the, and then a different type of arrangement for federal business, thereby carving out the federal business from the otherwise the arrangement. Um, and the OIG has not looked favorable on those because in the aggregate, it, it could it could appear to be funneling the the remunerations through different sources and treating providers um, health insurers differently in that context. Um, is is there anything that you, I actually haven't seen anything on this 
a case on this in recent times. Have you dealt with anything, Sean? I have, unfortunately. Uh, I've got some matters in, in, on the East Coast where it involved a toxicology laboratory and common in that area, especially in Texas, are the carve-outs. There'll be labs that address federal samples and labs that address commercial stand, uh, samples. And maybe, uh, Nathan, you'll get into this at the end when we talk about the travel act. But the government's view is that because money is kind of commingled, then this carve-out, even though there's no intent to try and induce a reward for federal business, in fact, they don't want it because it's lower paying, the government's taking the position that that's a carve-out, then it's an impermissible violation of the AKS. And even if you try and successfully get against that, then they still fall back on the travel act. Nathan, you had a comment. I think an important thing to remember with carve-outs is that it's very, very difficult to actually accomplish uh, a true carve-out because of managed care. And so it's uh, providers have a hard time sometimes distinguishing between governmental and non-governmental payers um, when United is both a, a private payer and a, right. and, a, and a government payer. That's especially true, right, Brad? I think we had a case years ago when I was still in AUSA uh, involving it's, it's extremely difficult to determine in some cases for some programs, not Medicare, Medicaid, but what is a federal program, especially when administered as a, by United, as you pointed out, Brad, or Nathan? Yeah, I, that, that's an excellent point. Um, and especially since that's a that's a area right now where I think we're seeing a lot of enforcement um, is the managed care aspects that do receive government funding. And the question is, I, I guess the two primary questions, one would be, as Sean said, how do you determine who is a federal funded, federally funded program, um, both as an operational level when you're taking insurance cards and they appear to be a private insurer, and and then also for benefit uh, or purposes of the statutes, um, where you would say, uh, depending on their capitated arrangements or what, what risk analysis those individual agreements are based on, that may or may not make a difference. So it is, that is a, a, a difficult, uh, well, it makes it more difficult to try to make an effective carve out. Especially when you're talking about secondary insurance as well, and then ultimately, we haven't talked about, I haven't seen any cases, Nathan, about federally subsidized, you know, exchanges being used for purposes of damages, and I think that just becomes a Herculean effort to get there, but I know people have pled it. I don't think it's actually resulted in any quantifiable damages yet. All right. So, I think a last point here, Brad, on uh, enforcement. Yeah, so... It's interesting because we talked about the evolution of the AKS over time, and uh, by 1987, the providers had effectively convinced Congress that there should be um, what have later been deemed as safe harbors, uh, because the concern was that the AKS in its previous form prohibited certain types of beneficial arrangements that were not intended under the original purposes of the statute. So three, three four years later, 1991, we see the first set of safe harbors in the regulations, and they've been revised and added to since. Um, but th those are important, I think, not only as a defensive matter. I mean, they're, aff they're affirmative defenses if it, if it ever came up in enforcement. But I think the primary benefit um, of, of knowledge and analysis under these is to analyze and vet any potential arrangement or deal to make sure that you have good uh, competence going in. There's, there's one case I wanted to mention, uh, a recent case, Sean, before we move, move on to some of these safe harbors. 
um, is this Acredo um, Greenfield case from the Third Circuit out of this year. Um, and, and the reason why I thought it was kind of an interesting case, I mean, just as a little background, is that the relator claimed that a pharmacy illegally donated to specific charities in order to exclusively receive patient referrals in return. The pharma pharmacy then allegedly violated the FCA by falsely certifying that it complied with the anti-kickback statute when seeking reimbursement for the care that it provided to the patients. Now, the district court granted summary judgment for the pharmacy on two bases. One is that it said based that the, the relator had failed to prove that the a the kickbacks, alleged kickbacks, were the but-for cause of the specific referrals, and that also there was no causal link between the AKS and the claims. So the the, um, the relator hadn't demonstrated or at least had any allegations that those claims were submitted because of the referrals. The Third, third Circuit took it, up, took it on appeal and affirmed, rejecting the but-for basis. But the holding on the causal relation is, is a little bit interesting because uh, the court rejected the notion that the kickback, that having kickbacks automatically renders every reimbursement claim false and affirmed on summary judgment, uh, effectively stating that it's not enough for a relator to merely show that the defendant submitted federal claims while allegedly paying kickbacks. And the court, one of the quotes I think is interesting from the court is that said, a kickback does not morph into a false claim unless a particular patient is exposed to illegal recommendation or referral and a provider submits a claim for reimbursement pertaining to that patient. I think it's kind of an interesting development for defense counsel and for for providers and counsel, uh, compliance counsel, when we look at, um, you know, with these cases and, and analyzing potential whistleblower um, defenses to understand that that at least when you're pursuing an F AKS violation, alleged AKS violation through the FCA, there must be a causal relationship between the alleged kickback and the claims. And I think this Third Circuit case gives good language to support that. That's a very interesting point, Brad, because I, have not, I was not familiar with that case, but uh, I, I hope our law enforcement partners actually read it because oftentimes tying a quid pro quo, so to speak, to a specific claim is something that's not happened. It's just generalized that, of course, you know, cowboy tickets, for instance, you know, led you to do this. And, you know, the, I think we have to remind all our compliance officials listening in that, unfortunately, in the healthcare business, you can't do what you would normally consider good business practices in marketing and other industries. And so, do pay attention to what Brad and, and Nathan are going to be talking to you about. I guess the final point here is just fair market value, commercially reasonableness. It's just a hallmark of you know, what the transaction has to look like in order to avoid AKS scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the final point on that before we turn to the specific safe harbors would be that just because you satisfy a, don't satisfy all aspects of a safe harbor doesn't mean that you're in violation of the AKS. Um, it's an intent-based statute, and there are a lot of factors involved. And so that's why um, the hallmark of safety, or at least one of them, and you see this throughout the safe harbors, is that the transaction is fair market, re fair market value and commercially reasonable. Um, and so that would be a baseline. Right. So, Nate, you're going to talk to us about the safe harbors, and just to follow what Brad just said, I think a lot of these can be wrote, but I think the, the key point is always, is it commercially reasonable and is it fair market value? 
yeah, where, where applicable, particularly with compensation relationships, and typically that's going to be a service type arrangement. Fair market value and commercial reasonableness, reasonableness are essential. Um, but there are a bunch of safe harbors, and um, we don't have time to, to go through them all. Um, we're going to talk about the uh, safe harbors, safe harbors for employees, personal services and management contracts, small investment interests, space and equipment rentals, and discounts. Um, but understand that there are a bunch of other safe harbors, including, for example, um, the GPO safe harbor, which protects uh, administrative fees paid by manufacturers to uh, group purchasing organizations, the ASC safe harbor, which protects physician and hospital investment in uh, ambulatory surgery centers, uh, physician recruitment safe harbor, and, and a host of others. Um, I, I use these regularly, daily, because uh, my practice focuses on advising healthcare providers um, about how to avoid uh, an AKS violation or any enforcement action. And so these uh, these safe harbors are, it's really important to understand them and to consider the, uh, and to structure your arrangements where they they fall within a safe harbor if, if it's possible. Or Nathan, right, to the extent feasible, meet as many elements as possible. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you can't, um, the, the, the general wisdom is that if you can't meet a safe harbor, uh, try to meet as many elements as you can, and, and in particular, the material elements in terms of overutilization and something that might uh, induce overutilization or uh, increase federal health care program costs. Typically, those are going to be payment, payment restrictions. Um, so the first uh, safe harbor and uh, is the employee safe harbor. It's both a statutory exception and a regulatory safe harbor. Um, there are really two components to this. Um, first, the relationship needs to be a bona fide employment relationship, and that is something that's determined based on uh, common law. And the second uh, prong of this uh, safe harbor is that the uh, the payment needs to be made for employment and furnishing of any item or service for which payment may be made by a federal health care program. It's that second prong that's created a little bit of, of confusion in the case law. Um, uh, back to the first prong, a bona fide employment relationship, just in general, is really determined based on whether or not the hiring party has a right to control the manner and means of the work performed. Um, there are a bunch of factors that can be considered, um, and they differ. But uh, whose patient is it that's being that's being uh, treated, for example, in a physician uh, relationship? Um, the method of payment. So if it's a payroll, if the if the payment's through regular payroll, or whether or not it's a payment that's issued only upon uh, achievement of a, uh, for example, uh, generating a certain amount of business for the for the uh, hiring party. Uh, unreimbursed expenses and a host of other factors. And Nathan, there's a recent decision addressing this issue out of the, I believe, the 11th Circuit, uh, which I don't think was a remarkable case, but it reaffirms longstanding you know, kind of solidity, sanctity of this particular exception. Can you talk to us about that case? I think it was the AIDS Foundation case. Yeah, it's AIDS Healthcare Foundation out of the 11th Circuit. And, and as you said, I don't think it's a groundbreaking case, but it does, the court does go, um, states uh, pretty unequivocally that this, this is a, an absolute safe harbor. Um, and so that once, once you satisfy the elements, you can pay an employee um, a commission 
essentially for um, referrals. Now, they did not get into the second prong of this, which is um, whether or not the employment is for furnishing uh, federally reimbursed item or ser items or services, because in this case, the, um, the services at issue uh, or the, the program at issue was the Ryan White Act, and it provides that referrals are reimbursable services. So um, there's still this, uh, this uncertainty regarding the second prong, prong but um, even uh, despite the uncertainty, uh, it's possible to, to um, treat a, or to argue that a, a, a marketing employee who, for example, markets um, uh, medical devices, drugs, or other medical services or, or reimbursable services is actually employed in the furnishing of any item or service. The scope of that's just really not been articulated. So there's, there's uh, some latitude there. All right. Personal services arrangements, Nathan. One quick thing about employees, though. Uh, it's important to remember that even if you do um, you don't have an, uh, an anti-kickback problem with an employee and there's no, uh, there's no concerns there. If you do not, you know, it's, it's essential that if, if, if commissions are being paid, for example, to uh, marketing employees, um, there needs to be a strong compliance element within the organization to make sure that the incentives that are, that the employees are receiving do not, do not um, cause them to, um, uh, break, you know, uh, basically uh, do things that are improper, otherwise improper. And so an, an example would be um, uh, paying uh, DME marketing employees a commission for uh, uh, selling supplies to patients. And, uh, you know, the, the compliance component needs to be uh, aware of the incentive and monitor uh, the orders that are going out to make sure they're medically necessary. Um, so there can be other false claims liability other other than a kickback that come from uh, paying employees uh, commissions. So personal service arrangements. Uh, this is this is the personal services and management contract safe harbor. It is uh, it protects arrangements with independent contractors. Um, this is uh, these are 1099 uh, independent contractors doing any number of things. Management companies marketing companies, um, physician services, uh, any kind of independent contractor relationship. The requirements are, are fairly simple. Uh, you have to have a written agreement, a term of a, at least a year. Um, it's got to cover all services provided. You can't have multiple contracts for personal services with a single uh, individual. Um, the, the most important requirement is that the compensation must be set in advance, consistent with fair market value, and not determined based on the volume or value of business between the parties. Um, what that does effectively is uh, prohibit, at least within this safe harbor, percentage-based compensation. So Nathan, we're seeing in the industry, especially kind of states that don't have a state enforcement mechanism for these types of arrangements, a percentage-based. Kind of, what do you tell clients that want to do something on a percentage-based? Well, obviously, it depends on what kind of services are being provided. To the extent there is any um, federal healthcare program business being generated. Let's say it's a, a management company providing marketing services as a, a component of their service offering. Um, well, I mean, typically uh, with uh, any kind of marketing, we would counsel uh, not using percentage-based compensation. 
if there are multiple services being provided and marketing is just one component, there are ways of, of structuring the fees such that um, the marketing, uh, to give you a better argument that the marketing is not percentage-based, so you might uh, segregate billing and collections and provide percentage-based compensation there, but pay a, pay a flat fee for uh, marketing. And we typically like to see, if possible, um, an independent valuation by a by a um, an auditor or a, an accountant accounting firm that um, supports the the amount of the fee. And an independent valuation expert can um, determine the fair market value of percentage-based compensation. So those can be very very helpful in in giving providers and suppliers some sense of certainty um, as they move forward that they have a defensible position. All right. So there's, this is a related issue to personal service arrangements, and, and I'll discuss it briefly. But essentially, uh, what has happened is that um, uh, providers or actually manufacturers selling, oftentimes manufacturers selling um, items, uh, devices, for example, uh, will offer wraparound services. And um, these might take the form of some sort of billing support, um, uh, computer equipment that that help uh, transmit uh, data to the to, uh, for review of diagnostic tests. Um, these oftentimes are perceived as not as being part of the item that's being sold. Um, however, OIG has taken a, um, a pretty hard stance on it and has has said that they must be integrally related to the pro the purchased products and have no independent value. Now that the contours of this are are difficult in some in some cases uh, the, the guidance from OIG is really just that limited reimbursement support is okay for example um, and that would be very high level um, non-patient specific uh, reimbursement support such as a, a list of codes that might be used with a device however um, any service that relieves a cost uh, to the purchaser of doing business uh, could be perceived as remuneration um, in addition to you know, separate and apart from the purchase of the device, and can can create um, uh, kickback problems. And yeah. so, that same billing and reimbursement support can be transformed into remuneration for purposes of the AKS if it's patient specific, and it's more like something you would um, be expected to pay for by hiring a billing consultant. All right. So, the small investment interest safe harbor is designed for small entities. Um, there's a separate provision for publicly traded entities with more than $50 million in net assets. This is a, an interesting safe harbor. It, it seems um, very helpful, but it, after we get through a couple of these requirements, I think we'll see that it's more difficult to, uh, to stay within the safe harbor than it, than it first appears. Um, and, and so, Nathan, we're talking about the 60-40-40 rule here. That's right. Okay. The two main requirements that create issues are that no more than 40% of the investment interests in any class of, of interests can be held by referral sources. And then a corollary to that is that no more than 40% of the entity's gross revenues can, can be derived from investor referrals. And those create um, some compliance problems for um, uh, structuring business arrangements with, with referral sources, um, for example, physician-owned labs or physician-owned pharmacies, even if you can track revenue, um, 
it's it's difficult to uh, determine when that that line has been crossed, and then what what do you do about it if you do cross it? Um, do you di- do you divest the investors, and and it might that might preclude you know investors from even even being interested in the investment opportunity to begin with. Um, so this is a it, it appears to be a helpful safe harbor, but in, in my experience, it's difficult to meet, and um, there are some there have been some creative attempts to to address some of these limitations, and I think that they're being they're basically being challenged now, and we'll see how it plays out. But I don't I don't think it it will end well necessarily, um, because generally these these um, structural mechanisms are designed to get around this 40% of, of gross rev- revenues limitation. Right, and so Nathan, this this exception, while you know completely appropriate. You know, operationally, from business-minded people, may not like this because it does limit the number, the amount of reimbursement or remuneration to a particular investor. But, Brad, what I'm seeing in the enforcement context sometimes is that you have arrangements where there's an opportunity to essentially kick out a low-referring position. And I know the government has had, you know, scrutinized those types of provisions uh, extremely in recent history. Have you seen that as well? Yeah, I have, and you know that's a, that's a pervasive issue for for healthcare providers and physician groups alike, because you want to incentivize you know good productivity and and referrals in proper circumstances, um, and so you you are left in a situation where you have to be very careful about how you structure those arrangements. And I think it is something that we you know providers should continue to be uh, attuned to, Sean. So, Nate, let's talk about the basics here, space and equipment rentals. Well, I want to jump back real quick. It's interesting because the ASC safe harbor for ambulatory surgery centers, it actually, uh, the way that it's, it's uh, the way that uh, the, the market has has tried to reflect uh, compliance is that they do kick out physicians who do not refer to the ASC. So, the 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 requirements there for a, the ASC safe harbor are actually that you have to use it and refer to it. If you're going to be an investor, from a compliance perspective, it seems like the ASC, if you can get there, is probably the easiest to comply with. Well, you, of course, the problem is that you have uh, at times, and the concern is from the government's perspective, is you might have uh, a general practitioner that invests in an ASC, performs no procedures there, and just uh, gets uh, revenue from referral referrals that he makes to to the ASC. And so it's a different, it's a it's the opposite essentially of what the normal the normal structure of a safe harbor, or in particular, the small investment interest safe harbor, the ASC safe harbor is, is from the, the opposite perspective, where the investors actually need to be referring to the ASC. I'd rather have that argument and that problem than the other. Yeah. yeah. Talk to us about the basics here, Nathan. Uh, I think if, if we're going to if we're going to strip it down to the basics, it's uh, the rental charge, whether it's space or equipment, needs to be set in advance, consistent with fair market value and not determined based on the volume or value of referrals. And then uh, secondarily, it must be commercially reasonable. And just to to address commercial reasonableness just momentarily, um, what we're talking about there in the extreme examples, um, for example, in a services arrangement would be uh, having uh, 25 medical directors when you only need one, or um, a services contract for services that you really don't need. Those are not considered commercially reasonable, even if the payments are arguably fair market value. So moving on um, to discounts and rebates. This is a kind of extremely complex, in my opinion, 
kind of the difference between discounts and rebates? Well, it, it's a it seems straightforward at first, and then you you look at some of the guidance and case law, and it gets convoluted uh, pretty quickly. Uh, basically, a discount is a reduction in price, um, and a rebate is a, a discount that isn't known at the time of the sale, but is it's later given once um, once known. Um, so it's a discount at a later date. Um, dis the term discounts under the safe harbor does not include cash payments um, except for rebate checks. It does not include bundled discounts, and those are um, uh, two products being bundled together and offered at a, at a discounted price or a free product uh, being provided with the purchase of another product, uh, except if the uh, the items are reimbursed under the same methodology, uh, and that's an unsettled area. Uh, we know that the same DRG is the same methodology, but beyond that, there's little guidance, and that it, it must be fully disclosed and accurately reflected um, in, in, on the invoice. And then a reduction in price applicable to one payer, but not a federal health care program. This is essentially a, a carve-out uh, limitation. So. The discount requirements differ based on whether uh, you're dealing with a buyer, a seller, or an offeror, and then the obligations are further differentiated based on the type of buyer, whether it's an HMO, a hospital, or other buyers, uh, providers, and suppliers. Uh, for our purposes, we'll talk just about the hospitals and other cost reporting buyers. Uh, the requirements are pretty simple. The seller's got to fully and accurately report the discount on the invoice, and that means they need to show the reduced price, inform the buyer of the buyer's reporting obligations, and not impede the buyer from complying with those. Uh, if it's a rebate, it needs to be described in writing before the initial sale. The invoice must reflect the existence of the rebate program, and when the value is known, the seller needs to provide a, a statement showing the calculation of the rebate. Um, these are not difficult uh, uh, to meet. I think that the, the main area of, of contention and risk uh, involves whether or not an item is actually a discount or not under the statute and, and safe harbor. The uh, main area is bundled discounts, which again, is it's an unresolved issue, but uh, examples include free or below cost non-covered services if a customer meets a, a device purchase a threshold or a tiered rebate, but but a tiered rebate based on all purchases uh, is not a is not a bundled discount. Right. Discounts that are more than price reductions. This is something the OIG has uh, recently, or not the OIG DOJ has recently um, addressed in the Colaplast case. Uh, the government didn't intervene in this, but they did file a statement in it of interest. Um, Basically, Colaplast was uh, allegedly conditioned discounts uh, to suppliers on uh, those suppliers converting patients from competitor products through a pr promotional campaign. Uh, ultimately, Colaplast settled for $3.6 million and various other parties settled for uh, different amounts. But the, D the DOJ, the government did not intervene in that case, but the DOJ did file a statement of interest where they argued that it any discount conditioned on more than a simple purchase is not a discount protected by the exception or safe harbor. And that said, some, uh, it made some folks in, uh, in the industry a little nervous, particularly those that were 
contemplating uh, value-based purchase arrangements where uh, a discount might be related to outcomes. But isn't it true in recent kind of regulatory pronouncements that that value-based uh, exceptions or safe harbors might be getting another look? Sure. Sure. The, uh, OI, or I should say um, CMS, OIG, and I, I think Department of Health and Human, Human Services generally is looking at uh, whether under new programs and, and payment mechanisms, um, the anti-kickback statute, the Stark Law, and the Civil Monetary Penalties Law uh, need to be loosened to accommodate those arrangements, generally because uh, the, the type of reimbursement involved greatly reduces the risk of fraud and abuse. The uh, final risk, risk areas are market share rebates. That's really just based on uh, recent enforcement and uh, prebates, upfront discounts, payments, signing bonuses. They are, uh, these are <laughs> discounts before uh, before the purchase. So those are uh, frowned hey, upon. Nathan, talk to us about the Stark Laws we're moving along here. The Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute overlap quite a bit um, in terms of, of uh, an arrangement may be subject to both, and, and many are. Um, but the Stark Law is narrower in a number of regards. First, it must involve a physician referral. You have to have a physician involved in the relationship. There must be an ownership interest or a compensation arrangement. Those are both broadly defined uh, to include indirect ownership and compensation. Uh, there must be designated health services. This is probably the best, the greatest limitation, and we'll get into what exactly those are in a few minutes, but uh, examples include outpatient drugs and durable medical equipment. And then it, it's the statute is limited and, and regulation are limited to Medicare. However, it does also apply to Medicaid indirectly. It does not apply to TRICARE and other federal health care programs. So there are, those are the uh, major limiting factors on the, the scope of this, uh, the Stark Law. However, unlike the kickback statute, it is strict liability. So if it applies and you have a ownership interest or compensation, a, a provider of designated health services, has an ownership or compensation arrangement with the physician that refers to them and it and refers Medicare and Medicaid business. You have to fully satisfy a statutory or regulatory exception or uh, there is strict liability. And the remedy here is is payment disallowance, uh, potentially exclusion and civil monetary penalties. It could be uh, the basis for an FCA violation. And uh, I will further note that the uh, there, the statutory requirement to voluntarily self-disclose uh, overpayments applies to Stark. And so if you discover that there's been an improper relationship, uh, federal law requires that that relationship be disclosed to the government and the money be re refunded. Uh, but the disclosure must occur within 60 days of, of discovery and, and quantification of that of the amount of the the uh, improper payment. Uh, Nathan, uh, I, I was just going to jump in here for a second. I think it might be interesting. Um, one of the pieces you had talked about was the indirect application of Medicaid, and I think a lot of our listeners may be interested in that. Um, and w what I was thinking about specifically is if if you have a concern that Medicaid applies indirectly, what's your what would be your remedy? Would you self-disclose through the CMS protocol? Because that wouldn't seem like it would apply to, to Medicaid funds. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's some confusion here, and it's a separate statute. Like I said, the the Stark statute and regulations only reference Medicare. There's a separate statute that 
uh, says that the federal government won't pay um, state their their share for Medicaid to a state if there's a start violation uh, related to those services. But it's unclear what exactly you're supposed to do if there is a Medicaid violation. I mean, I think that that discussion is academic because the government takes a position that's Medicaid is within Stark. And so it might be only the federal share, which for instance in Texas is 50% of every Medicaid dollar. And if you want, they'll say they may not be able to give you a release in an enforcement action for that state share. I think it's incumbent upon the attorney or whoever handling the matter for their clients to get that full release by going to unfortunately and bringing in the state AG or whatever agency that's applicable. And, and the problem there is states don't, the, the federal government's created this you know fairly streamlined reporting process. Now it takes years to resolve, but um, there's a, a form that you fill out and, and, and report the violation. States don't all have that. And so it's, it's a, and sometimes they don't even really know what you're talking about when you're offering to pay them back. So it's, it's a, it's it can be a, a difficult process for them. Absolutely, you send a check in and it just goes in the limbo. Although in the state of Texas, I do know that they have to cash a check that's a refund to them within three days. So keep that in your arsenal. They're happy to take the money. Yes, right? they are. Yeah. All right, talk to us about some of these exceptions, Nathan. So uh, Stark has a number of exceptions, and, and many of them are very similar to the um, anti-kickback statute safe harbors. The in-office ancillary services. It's really the group practice exception, for, for lack of a better description. It, it, um, it really uh, addresses referrals by physicians in a group to the group for designated health services. An example might be ophthalmologists referring to their group practice um, for the furnishing of A scans and B scans. And it governs how it's, very, it's a very convoluted and complex exception, but essentially it governs how those physicians can be paid and how the, the group practice has to be structured. The, there is a publicly traded security safe uh, exception, um, but unfortunately there's no small entity safe harbor or exception like the um, anti-kickback statute. Bonafide employment, personal services, which is very similar, but um, actually a bit more permissive, does allow uh, percentage-based compensation. Again, you, you've got to meet every requirement of a Stark, Stark exception if the statute applies. And just like the kickback safe harbors, many Stark exceptions, particularly involving compensation relationships, uh, require fair market value and commercial reasonableness. All right, as we continue, Nathan, and we're winding down here, I know designated health services are the list there. I think that's self-explanatory. Uh, did you want to talk to us about, there's been some recent Publications about the kind of the shared ACO shared savings program. Well, it, briefly, um, and there's other slides that the participants can review um, after the presentation. But the new new payment mechanisms used by the federal government are perceived by CMS and OIG to greatly reduce the risk of fraud and abuse. The probably the most well known example is the Medicare shared savings program involving um, accountable care organizations who are paid, who have an opportunity to um, to be paid a, a percentage of the shared savings they generate, or if they're in a two-tiered two or a two-sided risk model, to actually pay back uh, some if they, they create shared losses. Um, for these particular programs, and there's a full list on CMS's website, OIG and CMS have promulgated waivers and uh, from fraud and abuse uh, statutes. The 
Medicare Shared Savings Program waivers, for example, include pre-participation, participation, savings, uh, shared savings distribution, uh, compliance with Stark, inpatient incentive wa- incentives waivers that uh, apply to anti-kickback statutes, Stark, and in the case of the patient incentives, also apply to beneficiary inducement, uh, civil monetary penalties law. So these are very helpful um, in, in terms of uh, freeing providers and suppliers up to uh, structure their arrangements as as appropriate uh, for, with an entity that's in one of these models. And they have their own unique requirements that differ based on program and then based on the particular waiver. And again, the some of the particulars are in these slides uh, that follow, but just know that um, some of these some of these programs are out there and that they can be very helpful in terms of structuring arrangements. Right, and I and I'll just point to the to the audience. CMS has just issued some new guidance on ACO shared saving programs, kind of making it more uh, risk based for participants, which we'll see if that actually allows people to come in with some penalties for early termination, et cetera. So we'll see how that shakes out. Uh, and I think we talked about kind of the fraud abuse waivers and just briefly state fraud abuse statutes, Nathan. So every, almost every state has its own anti-kickback type statute and they vary widely. Some are uh, all payer, including patients. So it does, it's not limited to just, to just federal healthcare programs. And so those carve out arrangements can still be violations of even if a carve-out arrangement does not involve any federal violation, it could violate state law. Uh, in other words, private payer-only arrangements. And some of them um, have safe harbors, some don't. Some reference the federal safe harbors. So they vary widely, and their their enforcement varies widely as well. Some states are more, more likely to enforce, others rarely do. Um, there are a number of other state healthcare laws that impact uh, healthcare providers and suppliers, including fee splitting and corporate practice of medicine laws. Um, for example, in New York, percentage-based compensation paid to a management company by a physician practice is prohibited. Uh, self-referral prohibitions and restrictions; these are sometimes called many Stark laws that are similar to the to the federal law, but they differ oftentimes in many respects. Um, with regard to the scope of services covered, the type of payers covered, and the requirements, sometimes disclosure alone to the patient is of, a, of an interest is enough to get to get around it. Um, and then a host of others. I know we're running low on time, so I'll, I'll limit my comments. One comment, though, Brad, I've been seeing this, and I don't know if you have. The idea of fee splitting, which has been kind of dormant for many years, seems to be making a comeback with these now types of percentage arrangements. Have you been seeing that as well? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, certain states have laws that are pretty stringent on fee splitting. It seems like they have been dormant for a while, but that seems to be creeping up. And one other thing I was going to say before we leave to this transition um, out of the state realm is that it may be of interest to some of our listeners that uh, the many FCA or State False Claims Act, as we we say it, are incentivized at the federal level um, with a higher percentage of any recoveries. And HHS OIG has recently extended a grace period to 2018 for the states um, to have to make sure they're in compliance. And so that will be something to watch to see if your state level laws and related compliance uh, change in the next six months or so. We're looking at probably the majority 
if not two-thirds, states have some sort of variation. And as Nathan pointed out, not just Medicare or Medicaid, but potential state procurement as well. All right, Brian, we're going to switch over to some other laws here as well. I know we talked about the False Claims Act, and I think that's something that's very common, but do you have any highlights here? Yeah, I mean, just to keep it high level, um, I, we have some of the, the main points here, but there, I think there are two big developments in the past 10 years to keep in mind and that will be of interest. One is the expansion of the Reverse False Claims Act. We have the 60-day rule, um, and those things seem to be changing the landscape uh, for providers. And that's a, the knowing retention of a material overpay. Absolutely. Um, and, and so that has some real teeth for providers, especially in the compliance aspect, if they're doing audits and putting them on a, on a specific time frame. Uh, the second thing, what I, what I would say would be materiality aspects of Escobar and its related decisions that have come down, uh, arguably clarifying or, or lessening the standards of materiality, um, and we're seeing that shape out in some of the case law. Healthcare fraud statute, um, this is the government's primary enforcement mechanism on the criminal fraud side. Um, this accompanies almost any healthcare fraud uh, on the criminal uh, case in the criminal. One thing I would note here, Brad, uh, that you have to have a false or fraudulent statement, essentially. So mm -hmm. just simply a kickback doesn't get you there. There's mm -hmm. got to be some falsity attached to some attestation. And I think that's important when defending one of these especially in the criminal context. Yeah, I think that's right, Sean. And I think if you look at it on a spectrum, you would have criminal fa falsehoods on one end, and then you would have, maybe in the middle, you would have this the False Claims Act because it wouldn't rise to a criminal, but it would still have to be false or fraudulent. And then maybe on the other end of the spectrum, you'd have um, an administrative proceeding based on some allegations of fraud. I know the Travel Act has become a hot issue around the country, especially in the white-collar world. Can you give us kind of an overview of that? Yeah, so Travel Act has been around for a long time, um, and it's been used in anti-racketeering or other unlawful activities for a while. But uh, recently, um, and increasingly, it's been used in uh, healthcare enforcement cases. One of the interesting aspects is that it's not limited to um, to payers, federal payers, um, and as a predicate. You could use a possibly rarely um, enforced civil state statute, or, 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 or say cr criminal bribery or something. Um, so we are seeing that pop up. Um, it's being alleged in a number of new new cases, uh, and those are that's kind of a thing to watch an enforcement trend. Uh, civil monetary penalties. We've talked about that. Uh, that's really the administrative aspects. Okay, so right here, developments in enforcement. Uh, briefly, this is just a sketch of Department of Justice at a high level. As you can see, there are a multitude of different agencies and enforcement um, priorities articulated here. Primarily, we have Maine Justice, which has civil, criminal, consumer protection, which handles food, drug, cosmetic act cases, uh, and then obviously a host of other potential issues. Yeah, so I, I mean, what I think is important about this is to show some of the major players that we have. Um, obviously, the DOJ is, uh, is a primary player, um, and the DOJ has, in recent years and for years, uh, demonstrated a commitment to prosecute health care fraud. Uh, we've seen an exponential growth in terms of number of cases and dollars recovered. There are um, 
strike forces that have been instituted since 2007. Um, and recently, I think New Jersey is getting one as well. Yeah, so we're having more expansion of those existing programs. We're also seeing, um, you know, not not too long ago, pretty massive, uh, large-scale enforcement coordinated enforcement activities across agency, and so that that uh, affirmative action enforcement is not slowing down at all. Um, we, but but it, what's interesting is if we proceed also to the other enforcement players beyond the DOJ, we see that other agencies are taking note. Um, and a lot of the enforcement that we're seeing right now is actually what we consider non-traditional uh, agency enforcement. Uh, so TRICARE, um, state-level enforcement, Advantage, Medicare Advantage, or even uh, managed care organizations on the Medicaid side. Right. On the opioid crisis, the DEA has taken a, a role front and center and you know, kind of moving frat past and turning some of these cases into almost drug distribution conspiracies, mm -hmm. uh, which has very draconian penalties for any physicians or any pain management practitioners. Yeah. And I think the takeaway from all of this is that you need to be conscious and mindful of the interconnection of these agencies and these laws and regulations. And so when you're taking a proactive action, make sure that your compliance program or your deals or whatever your, your arrangements are are structured in a way that they comply. And to the extent there is an issue, you need to be able to understand how to maneuver these, these effectively. Right, because at any given time, you can be facing criminal, civil, administrative, licensure, and potentially private litigation arising from it. And they all work together and feed off each other. So, Exactly. Um, and so I'm just going to briefly touch on the next three slides here. Th these really just represent the increase in key TAM actions we've seen under the FCA uh, since Stark and AKS form predicates. Um, this is really the primary enforcement mechanism. And the, what, what's interesting for healthcare providers to realize is the majority of uh, whistleblowers we're seeing are former employees of practices or healthcare organizations. And it really shows how important it is to deal on the deal on the on the front end with um, with these employees' uh, alleged wrongdoing and having effective compliance programs that can try to find and deal with these issues effectively. I see a lot of these cases beginning with the sales and marketing person, whether a contractor, independent contractor, or an employee. Brad, have you seen that as well? Yes. Um, uh, some of the big cases recently uh, in the past few years have been have involved even consulting companies. Um, so it really touches on all entities that have access to your data. Um, and so that's why it's being important to have a comprehensive approach to your, your compliance program. And this is really the same thing. Um, you know, we, we have an increase in cases filed, but we also have an increase in, uh, in, in the judgments and the relator shares as well. And, you know, not only is False Claims Act activity on the rise generally, but it's also specific to healthcare. Um, you can see there, just on the graphic, the healthcare represents the predominance of settlements in 2017. All right, as we wind down, Nathan, can you talk to us about the so-called private enforcement of these conflict of interest laws? Sure. In, in addition to the rise of PTAM litigation, uh, payers have uh, decided to take uh, action directly in court against uh, uh, providers and suppliers for arrangements that they perceive as being improper. And there's sort of two 
two different types of cases that are, are the predominant uh, examples, and they both involve, uh, at, at some level, out-of-network uh, providers and suppliers. The first line of cases involves out-of-network laboratories uh, that partner up with small community hospitals that are in financial distress and offer to manage them and help them set up a lab. And the allegations are that it's not really the hospital that's performing any of these these um, services, these laboratory services, and typically we're talking toxicology tests and pharmacogenetics, very high reimbursement tests. It's actually the off-site, sometimes another state laboratory that's performing the tests, and but they're all billed under the hospital's number, under their name and number as if they were services provided by the hospital. So this is really a mechanism for out-of-network laboratories to get in-network by affiliating with the hospital. And the cases show dramatic increases in reimbursement to the hospital for uh, services, these laboratory services. And in some cases, I mean, the, the growth in revenue is unbelievable. And it, it, it catches the eye of payers. And so these payers are uh, have taken action suing, in some cases, the hospital, and in other cases, the laboratory slash management company um, for a variety of state uh, causes of action, including fraud, uh, negligent misrepresentation, intentional uh, interference with contractual relations with both providers and, and uh, members, and other uh, state law causes of action. And there have been... Um, a number of settlements. The second, and a couple of these I should note were filed very recently um, on the next two slides, uh, June 11th, uh, 2018 and June 8th, 2018, one by Aetna and the other by, I believe, Blue Cross Blue Shield. So you've got uh, a lot of activity on the, on that side of this, this, uh, this out of network uh, activity. The other side is just really straight out-of-network laboratories. And I think these these arrangements proliferated early on, but they may, this, this uh, enforcement action started in some cases a couple of years ago, and so it may have, have slowed down now. But essentially, these are out-of-network laboratories that allegedly waive uh, patient cost-sharing obligations and in some cases allegedly pay improper kickbacks to physicians and other providers for referring patients there for expensive toxicology and other types of uh, laboratory testing. As we wind down, Nathan, uh, any other ones you want to highlight on slides? No, that pretty much covers my, my set. You want to talk about Ask Gary? Yeah, I'll just briefly mention Ask Gary. Um, and the, the purpose, or I guess why we included Ask Gary in the slides here is because it kind of shows the far end of these uh, conflicts. Um, in, um, in in insurance realm, so the the component here is that it involved uh, automobile claims under a uh, private, you know, the the PIP coverage, um, and so we, I mean we don't spend much time on it except for to say that that automobile coverage is kind of interesting to the extent it covers healthcare claims. Um, it could also be subject to these conflict laws, and that's at least one example of an insurance company pursuing on that basis. And I know there have been some some others 
Um, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the next big wave necessarily, but it's also but it's something to show the outer limits and something to be aware of. Right. So, guys, as we wrap up, any concluding thoughts on these conflict of interest laws and the status of the cases and enforcement action? And Brad, I'll start with you. Thanks, Sean. Um, well, I think it's interesting um, to to realize that we're, we're you know these these laws have been on the books and we have regulations, but this is a time of where they're still evolving, both in the courts and um, in new regulations or or, or revisions and, and regulatory guidance. Some guidance we're seeing um, on the DOJ side on enforcement, um, and also through CMS and its. Uh, revisiting of some of some of the safe harbors and exceptions and so I, I think it's a time for us to to be particularly aware of these statutes these regulations and how they affect our common practices and make sure that compliance programs and and, and our deals are structured in such a way that we avoid enforcement when and if enforcement comes make sure that um, we have all the bases covered great Nathan any thoughts I think generally uh, what I've been running into on a day-to-day -day basis, um, I, I would say that, that based on that, I, I would counsel providers and suppliers that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is, and that you need to be mindful of uh, proper structure, if, of, of arrangements, prospective arrangements, hopefully, so that so that you're not um, having to to back out of something you're already in, but if necessary, you may have to do that. Um, but proper structure and then probably as important is to have a robust compliance function to monitor arrangements going forwards so that they don't become non-compliant at a later date. A lot of, a lot of um, enforcement starts, uh, involves arrangements that started off looking good on paper and, and maybe even in practice, and they slowly deviated and uh, became something that, that uh, gov the government or a key TAM relator or any other party, a, a commercial payer became uh, a thought was worthy of enforcement. I, guys, I see in the enforcement trend, healthcare remains very hot. The number of whistleblower suits continues to rise, whereas other areas of criminal or civil enforcement in this administration might have slowed down. Uh, I don't see that trend happening, uh, especially with the appointment of, of new prosecutors to address opioids. So my kind of final admonishment would be if you're in the pharmacy or any other space in the pain management side, I think that is an extremely hot topic and everybody is under scrutiny. But gentlemen, thank you so much for your insights today. And thank you, Catherine, for this opportunity to talk. I know we may have some questions and so I'll turn it over to you. Okay, thank you so much, gentlemen. Really appreciate that and appreciate all the um, really relevant examples. Um, we did have, a few questions uh, that came in, and I wondered if, um, if while we have the questions, would you mind uh, if you put? Uh, I know you had your contact uh, slides. Do you mind putting those up there? Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so one of the questions we had was, um, we're about to execute an arrangement that we believe satisfies a safe harbor or an exception. What should we do now if we're going to um, paper the transaction? Well, I, I would say that Thanks. depends on 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 what the uh, paper the transaction what the, what the yeah. arrangement involves. Yeah. Uh, you need to if it's uh, 
you know, for example, the requirements for a, an independent contractor services arrangement are going to differ uh, greatly from a joint venture with a referral source. So I, I think you need to select the appropriate safe harbor, and if it, if necessary, and in particular, if, if Stark applies, you need to very be very careful to structure it so it fits a Stark exception, and if necessary, get outside counsel's assistance with ensuring that the arrangement does, in fact, uh, fall within a safe harbor or exception um, to avoid potential liability, and also just to sleep well at night going forward. Yeah, and this is Brad. I, I would just add that um, it I had mentioned this before, but it's important to note that the safe harbors and exceptions are affirmative defenses to enforcement actions. And so uh, keeping that in mind, it does make sense to have um, have all of all of the, everything in order, um, like Nathan had said, including counsel and, uh, and and all the necessary documents and opinions and you what you what support you think you need to demonstrate that transaction if ever questioned. Right. Okay. Um, here's a good question. Uh, we screen all of our government patients. Doesn't that mean that we're safe as far as Stark and uh, anti-kickback um, Stark are concerned? Well, this is Brad. I, mean, I think I think we kind of covered this a little bit, but to go right. to back, um, one of the one of the points to keep in mind is the the carve out um, that we had discussed, um, where just because you're not involving government payers in a transaction or in a particular arrangement doesn't necessarily mean that those statutes or regulations do not apply. So that's a time where you should be even more careful about making sure that the arrangement satisfies whatever applicable safe harbors or exceptions you're hoping to, to have them cover. Right, and, and more importantly, Brad, and this is Sean, I think even try the attempting a carving out or screening from federal is not successful ever. I have not seen a client fully successful in that because of secondary and some of the issues we raised earlier. But more importantly, regardless of whether it's a federal patient or not, federal criminal law, especially under the Travel Act these days, kind of trumps everything. And so you still, and I, in my experience, clients who carve out federal, we don't take Medicare, Medicaid, so we don't have stark or kickback issues, uh, are pretty blatant about the purposes of what they're trying to achieve. and generally sometimes put in text and writing, which makes good evidence for the government in a criminal prosecution. So I would just warn anybody listening that even in those situations, you have to be very careful about how you go about structuring a transaction and attempting to comply, whether with the safe harbors, for instance, whether or not you even take federal claims or patients in case something does slip through. But the recent prosecutions across the country, I think everybody had that idea and it just hasn't worked out. Well, in the and even if it doesn't involve government enforcement, payers are making it clear, and it's not just litigation. They'll, they're, they are uh, kicking people out of their networks for arrangements with out-of-network laboratories, for example. You can you can lose a substantial amount of your business by being by by more more informal actions that payers can take, in addition to litigation. So that's a great point because contractually. All these different riders and amendments at some point, whether at the beginning or at it on, I think it's very important to keep track of your payer contracts and what requires, whether you have physician ownership or not, or investment or not. True, true. Oh, okay. Um, now, I think you guys uh, covered this as well, but um, if you could uh, give us another point on it, but 
what can we do to minimize our risk in this enforcement environment? I think Nathan hit it on the head. You have to have a robust, demonstratively effective compliance program. Uh, it will eliminate the big ticket risks, but also mitigate any potential consequences of an enforcement action. Because generally speaking, the government wants to see, especially the agencies, that you're trying and you're getting it right. And the hallmark of that is a repayment or disclosure, not just a big ticket item, but you know, a give and take back and forth uh, refunding of payments. I've seen that become very effective. And remember, the basic blocking and tackling of a compliance program can get uh, through operations and business-related issues before you even have to bring in you know, the chief compliance officer or the executives or even outside counsel or auditors. Most of those issues can be resolved. And I just think scrutinizing any physician relationship and making sure there are no conflicts of interest, having them disclose those types of arrangements in writing so that the organization, whether it's large or small, can say we've did everything we possibly could do to protect ourselves and ensure compliance with fraud abuse laws. You guys have any thoughts? Yeah. Did you guys have any other thoughts on that? I I would just add to that. We understand that there's a little bit of, um, that that there is, it's easier said than done in some cases to have a, a robust compliance function within an organization. And what I'm referring to is that there's a, a tension in healthcare between compliance and business interests. And uh, a number of clients that I've had have had difficulty overcoming the business interests um, to, in order to have a, a, a viable compliance program. And that's just something that uh, compliance officers and other folks that they work with have to have to navigate on a day-to-day basis, but um, I think that there's a sufficient amount of enforcement going on that that it should be relatively easy to convince business interests, those in the business side, side, that there is a legitimate reason to take these laws seriously and to allow compliance to do its job. Right, and I'll just say this, and Brad, jump in, which you see as well in your practice. Under the Yates Memorandum, the DOJ in the states and the agencies are still very focused on uh, pursuing individuals who may or may not have performed uh, improper acts. And there's no way now these days a company can just buy its way out with a check. And so that's incentive enough, I think, for executives and leaderships to address compliance. And you're not going to be able to get it all right. But I think having that one doctor who continually gets it wrong from a coding for documentation perspective, I think that organization has to take a hard look at it. That person or clinician may represent a significant referral base, but on the other hand, they're presenting undue risk. And without addressing it, you're putting your organization and potentially breaching fiduciary duty, which a lot of the payers are arguing too for these executives. I, I agree. I, I mean, part of the, the complications and difficulties you, you know, you're seeing with compliance officers and compliance programs these days, it, and historically has been explaining to business folks, as Nathan said, uh, some of the risks. But I think, if anything, this, this presentation the, and the development we discussed demonstrate that those risks are tangible and they're serious and in some cases they're criminal individual and so the task is to be able to uh, make sure that those interests are aligned in such a way that the providers minimize risk while maximizing healthcare outcomes. Okay, great. Well, I think that we are definitely 
running out of time. So I think if there's any other questions at all, um, we're going to take those um, offline and into um, email, and we'll we'll get back to um, our attendees on that. So um, uh, did you all have any other any other final thoughts or anything at all? No, just again, thank you for the opportunity to talk to everybody today and wish them a pleasant afternoon. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Um, thank you all so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, and thank you so much to our attendees as well. Um, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Um, if you send, you send us any questions, we'll forward them on. Please remember, attendees, that you can download a copy of the handout. Um, on the right-hand side of the screen, there is a button for downloading the handout, um, which then you can have a, um, the, the handout, the uh, uh, contact information, which is right there uh, for Sean, Nathan, and Brad. So please remember also your Paycom CEU certificate will be emailed to you from Paycom within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.